This is The Lonely Hour, produced by Pale Groove. I'm your host, Julia Bainbridge. I'm an editor and a writer, mainly about food. But I also have a lot of feelings, loneliness being one of them. I want to explore that feeling because it's pervasive, but the literature on it is not. Each episode of The Lonely Hour is going to focus on a particular topic, whether it's a community or a profession, an age group, or an activity that seems to arouse feelings of loneliness or aloneness. That could be mental illness, for example, or it could be social media's effect on us. It could even be motherhood. The idea is to catalog tidbits on this very human feeling. Because we all feel lonely sometimes, I want to explore how we feel it. The greatest aims of literature were, according to the late David Foster Wallace, to connect, to challenge, and to make us feel less alone. The act of writing, though, is a solitary one. Thus, a career as a writer involves a lot of time spent alone. As another great writer, Ernest Hemingway, said at his Nobel banquet speech in 1954, writing, at its best, is a lonely life. Will Chancellor's first novel, A Brave Man Seven Stories Tall, was published in 2014, and he's currently in the middle of writing his second, called To Test the Meaning of Certain Dreams. When I first wrote this, uh, the book that came out uh, in 2014, I wrote, I was living in Pittsburgh, Texas, this little town in Northeast Texas. My, my grandmother, uh, my mom grew up in this town and my, my grandmother had a house, but she was in assisted living, but we kept her place in Pittsburgh, Texas, right? Mm-hmm. So it was this house that no one had lived in, in uh, something like seven years. And uh, it was run down in the middle of the woods in Northeast Texas. And uh, I went there for eight months and I was living, you know, completely by myself. Um, I would go to the grocery store in the middle of the night. There there was a a Piggly Wiggly that was open until like 10 p.m. And I would go at like 9.30 so I wouldn't see anyone. And I would just... So you wouldn't see anyone. Right. Yeah. I mean, I just didn't have... And I would stock up on basically get like a month's worth of supplies. So I would get uh, Newman's Saccharini sauce and spaghetti and uh and then mac and cheese and almond milk (laughs) and and, uh and then I would go home with like a month's worth of supplies and I would just stay you know I was in this house there was no one that I knew in the town I, I had a you know, there was an old rotary phone like, uh-huh. with actually with a rotary dial. Um, and I would talk on the phone to, you know, to my parents every every week or so. But, I mean, I was really, really cut off. and um, Intentionally so. I mean, you went to so. the right, grocery yeah. store late so that you wouldn't right. see anyone. I mean, Why? I, was, I was 22 years old and I was really hard about my, what I thought my, my view of the world was, uh-huh. which is hilarious now. But, like... Um, I was just like, look, I'm, I'm going to write this book and I need complete, you know, I need to be cut off in order to, to, to do it. And, uh, the, the upshot of this is I've never been happier in my life. You know? When you were in that house yeah, in which makes Pittsburgh, me Texas, huge... which I didn't know existed. I was like, Pittsburgh, <laughs> yeah. Texas, is, is that a typo in yeah. the, the email he sent? Northeast Texas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like maybe that makes me a huge asshole or maybe it makes me I don't know what but like I've I've never been happier in my life Hmm. uh than I was then um and part of that is like when you're in the that crystallization phase where things are just like lining up and and you know it's kind of close to the shining I guess in some ways but like because and I I guess it's close because then when you move out of that state of isolation and you see what you have in relief against a regular world you realize that it's actually pretty bad and that's that's what happened to me so I so I wrote this 1200 page draft in eight months of total like shutdown isolation in northeast Texas and then I moved to New York and I, I managed to get a spot in the Chelsea Hotel. So I was living there from 2004 to 2006. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, I, I think being around, being in the heart of Manhattan mm-hmm. and in really a creative center of Manhattan and 
being around a lot of people who lived in the hotel who were photographers and painters and uh, and writers mm-hmm. um, really made me look at the work differently, you know, and, and I looked at what I had in a more objective sense and realized that what I wrote in that cabin or in that house was horrible. <laughs> it was, it was really, really bad. Um, and eventually I got to a point where I, I just completely started over again. So I, I discarded that draft and, and began on page one again. I, I think initially I did need to go through that isolation in order to, to have, to get to the point where I am now where I can be, you know, amidst everything, but also kind of cut off in my own way. Hmm. Um, let's talk about that. This for the first book. Um, cause we haven't, I, I haven't gotten to that yet, which, so it's a brave man, seven stories tall and I haven't read it yet. Hmm. I will now, <laughs> but according to flavor wire, it's a book about, people who have had their hearts broken in different ways and what becomes of them as they run away to deal with their grief. Is this, you think, an accurate way to describe what it's about? Yeah, I think absolutely. It's a story of, uh, I mean, the title is meant to be playing around with the the notion of what it means to be like epic and Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of these, these notions that you form in your own head about the, the significance of your life. But then what ends up being the significant part of your life, I think is your relationships and, and a lot of times, you know, heartbreak and trying to get, trying to integrate that with these notions that you have of your, of yourself as being like a brave man, seven stories tall, which you know, isn't really meant to be that ironic, but yeah, I, I do think that that's an accurate description. I think it's how we come to terms with, uh, with reality, specifically, you know, romantic reality, uh, when we look at ourselves in this, you know, in this, uh, grander way, I guess, or in this bigger scheme. Right. Well, so this, the main character, Owen Burr, some things happen. Uh, I, I guess he was a would-be Olympian, and you know his whole world gets um, thrown off course. Because See, here's a, where I, I I greatly disagree with like the whole marketing apparatus. He was of this not a book. would-be Olympian. No, he's not the protagonist of the book. I think the book is his, about his father, his dad, yeah. um, and it's or at least it's meant to be an interweaving of the two. Um, but there's there's a tendency, you know, when you're when you're a young guy writing a story that has, you know, one of the characters is 22 and one of the characters yeah. is 50. You so are I, Owen. Right. Yeah. So which one is the center and which one are you more like? Right. And, I mean, in reality, the, I don't know, I'm much, much more like the, the father to the extent that I'm like either one of them. Well, um, but you did Well, so to tell, you know, listeners who, who don't know kind of who these two are. So, Owen was a water polo player in like one of his final matches in college, gets his eye poked out, um, can't go on to be a professional, kind of runs away. Um, well, not kind of, very much runs away mm-hmm. um, and, and cuts off contact with everyone in his life, including um, this father who um, comes running to find him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so why are you like the father? Uh, the, when so, you're the one who put yourself in Pittsburgh, Texas, cut yourself <laughs> off. <right once. laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, I don't know. I, I think his question is, is he's looking at his son and never understanding him. I mean, he's like, mm-hmm. who, who is this guy? You know? And, um, and meanwhile, his son is like, well, where did these people go? Like this, that old, like Ubi Sunt, like, where are they? Where are these brave men seven stories tall? Um, and the father is like, who is this guy? You know, and that was a central question for me. Um, at least where this book came from, I guess, was this one. I, I was a freshman in college mm-hmm. and it was actually my very first seminar. And we're sitting around a conference table and... Uh, the professor puts up a statue or puts up a slide of a statue of Poseidon and says like, you know, all right, what do you guys think about this? And everyone's really nervous. No one says anything. And then, uh, this one six foot eight water polo player in my class raises his, his hand and he says, well, I don't think it's that accurate. 
(laughs) (laughs) The professor says, accurate's a a really interesting word to use. It's a statue of a god. What do you mean it's not accurate? He says, well, I always thought Poseidon would look like me. (laughs) So uh, I dated a water polo player all throughout college, and I can say that that attitude is accurate. (laughs) I can also say that it's not too crazy for... um, I mean, I didn't know before being closer to this sport through him how vicious it can be. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of these guys like grew their toenails long mm-hmm. to under the water, mm-hmm. scratch at each other. Mm-hmm. And file, you know, you file your nails down to a point and yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, so that's actually, so I wasn't a water polo player mm-hmm. before I, I actually played, I played for two years to research the book. Mm-hmm. Like. Um, so I played on a team when I was doing postgrad work and, um, in something unrelated to writing, but that process of playing polo was me kind of trying to figure out, um, the same thing. And I think what you well, were like, how try- real could it be that somebody's eye actually got poked out? No, just figure out the mentality of this, yeah. you know, so that, that comment that he made was really the, that was, you know, I, I tried to get past that for a couple of years, but then it was, it was just so firmly seated in my head of like, who says something like that? You know, <laughs> like who is this person? And that's the stance that, that the father Burr is coming from, which is also there, you know, there's uh, Owen falls in love with this woman. It remains to be seen how much she loves him, mm-hmm. but, um, She's trying to figure out who he is this, the exact same way that you described it. Like that look in your eye just then when you were talking about that. <laughs> like that, that's what I hope I captured in her eye. And mm. what I hope I captured in the father's eye as well of, of like, who is this person, you know? So the book always gonna, was going to end in Iceland. There are seven mm-hmm. chapters and the last chapters in Iceland. And I, I was firm about the fact that it was going to integrate that because it talked about some of the things that I wanted to, to discuss, you know. Or just the way that I saw it. I didn't want to talk about it, but I just saw this book in Iceland the whole mm-hmm. time. So I hiked across the country for two months, and that was total. Uh, so I flew into Reykjavik, and I had this refrigerator box that had four boxes, kind of like a shoebox size inside mm-hmm. it, right? And this, and once I was in Reykjavik, I mailed each one of those to a different place throughout the country mm-hmm. and I left it post restant at a, at a post office. So, um, then I, I took a bus to the westernmost tip of, of the Snefelsnes Peninsula, uh, of Iceland. And I spent two weeks hiking to a post office. And then once I was there, I would send the film for my camera back to Reykjavik. And, uh, this is a Wes Anderson film. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess, but it was like, I don't know. It was funny because it was, there was absolutely, you know, you get outside of really, you get outside of Reykjavik and there's no one in Iceland, but the country is something like 300,000 people and 250,000 live in Reykjavik. So, um, as you're hiking across the country, you see what looks like a town on the map. Um, and then you get there and it turns out that 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 name on the map was a person and that's, mm. and that's his farm. Wow. Um, and so it's funny. It was really like two months of, of trespassing, <laughs> like yeah. The whole, yeah. <laughs> you know, in the middle of nowhere. Um, because I was on someone's property, I guess the whole time, like I wasn't hiking on a trail. I just was, I made my own route and was like, okay, here's the westernmost tip. Here's the easternmost tip. I'm going to find uh, a way to hike across you know, across the country in order to do that. I think that as a writer, you're first a reader and that you're reading every writer I th- whom I respect spends a ton of time reading and that's inherently a solitary activity. Like, I think that, um, my, my friend had a nice quote. She she said, you know, writing, it's where you put all your reading. And it's, I think it's really true that, um, for me, at least the, I, whenever I'm, I'm, reading a lot, I can't help but write, you know, and those two mm. go together. And I think it's first the solitary activity of reading, um, which for me requires that deep, you know, solitude in order to read well, um, to totally close everything out. And whenever I'm, I'm reading a lot, writing is almost like a byproduct. It's not that right. I think, I, I think the only reason I'm a, I'm a writer is because I'm a reader. Like, and, and I think that time allocation, uh, 
you know, you have to make a very conscientious decision to not do all of these other really fun things and, and read, you know, but then you get to a point where, uh, where there's nothing else that's even comparable to reading. Like right now, I mean, I've, I'm reading, I'm a huge, I'm on a huge Zadie Smith kick right now. And, uh, aren't we all, yeah, I had, but the last two nights, I mean, two nights ago, my, my best friend came over and we watched a, not to be like all fifth grade, my best friend, but like my best, my, my BFF came <laughs> over and we watched a movie for this thing that we're going to write, uh, we're going to do a conversation about. And, and then last night I, I went out to dinner with a good friend of mine who's, you know, fantastic conversationalist. And, but the whole time I was thinking, you know, I'd really rather be home reading Sadie Smith. And I bet, you know, since both of them are writers, I bet they were saying at the same time, I'd really rather be home reading whatever than talking with Will, you know? And I think there's, that's the solitary pull of, uh, of reading is what, you know, like, I don't know. I think that that's uh, all of the writers that I like are spend a ton of time reading. Mm -hmm. Um, there's also something I, I haven't talked to enough people about this, but for me, whenever I'm reading something, I'm reading it through the lens of the characters who are in the book that I'm working on. So, uh, right. The book that you're writing, mm -hmm. you read the book through that lens and it's almost like, yeah, well, no, I mean, it's, it's more like, uh, obsessive. There's nothing mm. else. There's absolutely nothing else in my world than the characters in like, and this is, I think maybe I'm a, I'm a little bit different like this. Um, like my interiority is really the interiority of the characters that I'm writing about. And, but uh, they are you, right? I mean, in a way, no, not at all. I mean, this is, uh, well, the, they come from your brain. They could be very different people from you are, but you are creating them. So, yeah, I get, I mean, to be deterministic about it, but right. like, I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's, I'm writing right now about, um, a woman named Yvonne in 1925 Copenhagen. And, you know, everything that I'm reading, I'm trying to, to piece together, you know, how would she interpret this? How would she see this? And as, as much as possible to, to read through, you know, from her eyes and, uh, that, you know, that requires, I think being, a little bit, uh, quiet. There's definitely that all consuming aspect of being in the middle of the process where every single input you're thinking about it in terms of the, the book that you're working on, but really the characters that you're writing about and, yeah. and your own character ends up taking a, a backseat. Does that affect, well, actually, so one question, when you say input, what do you, what do you mean? Exactly? I mean, everything like this interaction right now, um, like there's some part of my brain that's thinking about how, first of all, I guess like just rifling through almost like the index cards of the next book and being like, Oh yeah. Is there any moment where this like slots in mm. to where, you know, there's any kind of conversation that like maybe an interview or a public kind of conversation that my characters, I guess could go through. Um, and then there's a second, you know, there's this second deeper level of the emotional connection, like, you know, how, you know, just connecting to, to a person and thinking about how another, uh, how a character would, you know, would connect. Like, mm -hmm. and then there's maybe the superficial level of like, you know, where would she sit in this room? Like, would she, how would she feel about the sunlight? Like, you know, backlighting her, how would she feel about, uh, the sound of a dog whimpering in another room, <laughs> like how, you know, how would she feel about being in, in a neighborhood where she's a little bit, you know, that's unfamiliar to her? Like, is that a source of excitement or, or trepidation? And that, um, that's not really me, you know, like I have, I mean, who are you then? I mean, it's, it's like, so I imagine this process you've been describing of yours or whatever your inclinations basically when you're working, which I, which is sensibly all the time, you know, does it affect your sense of identity? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think like the, I, I try to be as open as possible. Mm -hmm. Like that's really, and then I, I also try to be as intuitive as possible, like, and rely completely on, 
you know, whatever the, the intuitive impulse is. But yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a dad and, Mm -hmm. you know, I have a five-year-old daughter and she's with me for half the week, every week. And, you know, I'm in a totally different mode when I'm with her, you know, that's like actually me as a person, like, but when I don't have a responsibility to someone else to care for someone else and, uh, then yeah, like I, I'm, I'm typically not there, I guess, in the way that, that, uh, or at least the times when I'm, I feel like I'm the most myself or the times when I'm the least present or the least there in a self-aware sense and more in a, in a sense of trying to, to process the world through someone else's eyes. And Mm -hmm. to me, that's, you know, that's, what's great. That's why I'm doing this with my life. That's what's great about books is it gives you the opportunity to leave your own subjectivity as a writer. And I guess primarily as a reader, like, or initially as a reader that, you know, you're able to detach from your own, uh, gender background, you know, uh, and, and, feel what the world is like from, from someone else's point of view. And, yeah. uh, Rivka Galchin is a novelist who, whom I, I like a lot. Uh, Heidi Julevitz is the same way. Uh, their, the, their work is, uh, is I guess fleet of foot is maybe a better description. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's light in the sense that it doesn't get caught with the weight of existence that really is there. Like it's a refutation of how serious things are and how weighty things are. And that seems tied to, to how I view solitude. Like my entire life has been, uh, has been an an extension of like what I was like when I was five and I was alone in bed thinking about like, you know, solitude to me means you're in some kind of dialogue with, with nothingness. And I was five looking at the spackling ceiling of my bedroom and, uh, started to think about death and nothingness and, uh, couldn't sleep. And so I had insomnia, um, and had to like, I really probably should have been in in therapy, but my parents were like, well, no, we'll take, well, you know, we'll take you to the, to the pastor at the church. And, and so that, and so, um, where is this? Where do you, this was, I I was in Hawaii and then this was actually like, by the time I was talking to a pastor, it was, we were living in Texas. Mm. Um, and, uh, so, you know, but his reaction was, he was like, well, what, what exactly is the problem? And I was like, well, anytime that I'm alone and, and like before I go to sleep in bed, I start thinking about, you know, what happens if there's nothing and what happens if, you know, if uh, there's nothing after, after death. And he's like, well, um, maybe it was just, maybe it's just like before you were born. And he didn't, he didn't realize that that was the horror for me. Right. Like the, the void of, of non-being from before birth was exactly what, you know, was, horrifying, um, about being alone like that. Right. And I don't know that I've ever, I still haven't found a therapist. (laughs) I still (laughs) should probably go, but like, it's, uh, that's, that's the weight of alone that's there. There's always that weight, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's always, and, and that weight is present and the writers whom I admire are able to stay light in the presence of that Mm -hmm. weight. You know, um, the closest thing that I have to a method is that I will write in complete isolation. I write in, you know, I write on my kitchen counter a lot. Mm -hmm. So I'll write in complete isolation and then I'll edit, uh, in public, (laughs) you know, Mm. I'll, I'll edit at, uh, at a bar. (laughs) It's because that brings you more into the mind of like, oh, wow, people are going to read this. I need to, right be thinking of it as a, as a reader and not just a right. me. Yeah, exactly. And mm. I mean, as far as getting caught in, you know, self-indulgence, mm-hmm. that's, that's definitely what I'm always, even in a conversation like this, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like just trying to avoid being too self-indulgent and it's trying... about you though, this interview, <laughs> so take it away. <laughs> so here's my song and dance number, <laughs> but, uh, 
Yeah, I think it's important to, I think being in doing that act in public of editing does reinforce the fact that you're trying to uh, avoid being self-indulgent and mm-hmm. to, you know, to make something that appeals to someone else, because that's really the, the point. Andrew Friedman has made a career out of chronicling the lives and work of some of the world's best chefs. Frankly, it would take the rest of this show to list all of his projects. Head to his website, tokeland.com, and you'll see what I mean. But he's penned over 25 cookbooks, numerous articles on kitchen culture, and he's the co-host of the Front Burner podcast on Heritage Radio Network. An avid tennis fan, he also co-authored the New York Times bestselling memoir, Breaking Back, with American tennis star James Blake. Ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer of, of some kind. I wanted to be a screenwriter, and I ended up being a prose writer. Um, uh, and I love, I love having written things, but I find the act of writing to be very difficult. And, uh, of course, there's all the typical writer's block things that every writer talks about. But for me, along with that, as an overlay to that, is the fact that you're alone all the time. Writing is maybe not by definition, but by uh, inescapably, it is a solitary act. You sit and you type words onto a screen. um, And that is something you do on your own. Uh, And I'm a deeply social person. I'm probably the only writer I know who looks back to the years when I had a day job and worked in an office and had a staff and would gather people in my office or around a conference table and, you know, roll your sleeves up and, and tackle a project or have several status meetings during a week and engage in these team activities and what to most writers would probably be a sort of anathema, you know, this Mm -hmm. very kind of corporate business setting. I had to wear a suit and a tie I didn't like what I was doing, and I desperately wanted to be a writer, but the social aspect of that kind of work was really satisfying to me. The team aspect of that kind of work was really satisfying to me, and I actually do get very nostalgic for those days. I wish I could walk to a little employee gathering place, like a cafeteria or the snack room or whatever existed in any place I worked periodically during the day and just kind of take a break and talk to people. Mm -hmm. You know, I think in some ways, email and social media fill that function. Sometimes you can kind of have this virtual water cooler, but it's not the same. Right. The ideal of being a writer for me are the sports writers I've known who are at a tournament or uh, at a big game and see it happen and then go back to their desk in the media center and kind of put their head down and bang out, you know, a couple thousand words in a couple, in an hour or two, three hours. And then it's online and all over the world. Um, that's, there's a sort of kind of grin and bear it aspect to it that I really respect and try to live up to. And mm-hmm. so, you know, part of me has always tried to just, um, squelch this feeling I have, but it is an inescapable feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I very often will, and I've learned this, try to get some kind of a little bit of a social fix in my morning. Um, you know, especially if I'm deep in a project or I'm approaching a deadline, the tendency I think is if you're in a good space and you're rolling on a project to not let go of that, you know, work late at night. I'm sure every writer knows this feeling work late at night, almost fall asleep at the desk, maybe even nod off and then, you know, make your way to bed, get up in the morning and just write back to the computer and try to just ride that wave as long as you can. But what I've, what I've learned is there are little things I do that are a way of connecting with the outside world. And some of them are even as, have nothing to do with even communicating with other people. But for example, opening my windows, opening the shades, putting the, mm. opening the blinds, as a, I don't, that's not a normal thing for me because it pulls focus, but you feel more connected to the outside world. That's hmm. something I've been doing just in the last few weeks. I've just learned to do that. Um, it sounds counterproductive, but I may make myself a breakfast appointment with a friend or a coffee, a morning coffee or a tennis game. Um, if I can do it early in the day, I find that having that out of my system uh, very much enables me to focus. Right. And a lot of writers, especially I think in big cities, certainly in New York, I've had this conversation with countless writers where they will tell you they do their best writing after 11 or 12 at night because all the static has fallen by the wayside. You know, they're they're not getting 
uh, texts from people saying, let's grab lunch. Uh, they're not getting emails from editors and, and friends, and they're not even really getting junk mail at that hour. Um, you know, the social media stuff has died down. Um, there's not really anything really good on television. All these things that can pull your attention during the day, they fall away. And I think that's why for a lot of people, you know, those, the late night hours are great because mm-hmm. you're supposed to be alone late at night, you know, like that's, kind of a natural thing you know there's there's not a lot of other options um so i think that's why so many people are drawn to that time of day the thing about writing is that it's all mental so if you are uh, you have to get to a place where you are in sync with what you're working on and in a flow uh to me music can be very helpful for that um, but it can take a little while to ramp up in the morning and get to that headspace to kind of shut out whatever else you've had to deal with or might be on your mind. Whereas in most jobs, there is a certain amount of, I don't want to call it busy work, but work that doesn't require full mental engagement. Uh, You can write a memo that conveys information. It doesn't have to necessarily be written in the best way. It doesn't have to be an expression of yourself. It, It doesn't have to be a piece of art if you're aspiring to something like that. You just have to convey the information. You don't really get judged on style in a memo. Um, you can clean up your desk. You can you can work on a schedule. These are things that really, as a, when you're a writer, you don't have that kind of work. All of your work the, the, is writing. Um, so if you're not in a good place for that, it can take a while to get there. And that can, you know, on a bad day, that can take a few hours. Um, and then if God forbid you have a phone call scheduled or a lunch appointment, you can lose, you know, I say, you know, I used to refer to it as you lose the scent, you know, mm. and then you have to start over again. What does your office setup look like? Describe to me the room in which you write. I have a home office. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a desk that sits under a window. Um, uh, and yes, it has kind of level or type blinds. So you can open the blinds or you can pull the whole thing up. Um, and my very much on purpose, my, my, I face the window and my back is to everything else. My back is to my research books. My back is to, uh, even my wife's desk, which is over my left shoulder, but behind me, um, it's, it's, it's to my back is to the rest of the house. Really. If you went beyond the room I'm sitting in, it's, it's really designed to sort of, put me at a remove from the rest of my life mm-hmm. um, because, so, so I'm not distracted by it. When I lived in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't anymore, I now live north of New York City in Westchester County. Uh, but when I lived in Brooklyn, I joined uh, a place called the Brooklyn Writer Space, uh, which was, simply put, it was a, a space that had 18, I believe, study carol type desks mm-hmm. with little just partitions. Uh, it had a little room in the back where you could go and eat, uh, food, but the whole, um, idea of this place was that it, you, you were to keep, uh, as quiet as a monk, basically, you weren't allowed to talk. You weren't allowed to eat at your desk. If you were listening to something on a headset, it had to not be audible to anybody. Um, and it was the great thing about it was, and I would liken it to a lot of people, work out best when they belong to a gym because they go to a gym and you're surrounded by other people who are working out and you know you're seeing them working out you're seeing them put forth an effort and and it makes you want to put forth an effort i don't know if i'd go so far as to say you're inspired but almost just out of pride or not wanting to embarrass yourself you you know you keep going um it gets you in gear it gets you in gear so this was a similar thing. It was very comforting to have just this, basically all you heard in this place was other keyboards. You know, other writers typing is great background noise. Mm-hmm. It, uh, there's got to be some kind of subliminal effect that takes hold just by having people around you producing. Although what I will say is funny to me is, you know, you might be in that space and there would be 18, 20 people because there were also some couches and things like that. So there could be more than 18 people there. But I don't believe I ever heard 18 people typing all at once. You know, I think there were a lot of other people who were sort of, you know, going through what you go through, which is like not having the next sentence or needing to think. And of course, doing research um, and things like that. Um, You know, and I'm sure a fair number of those people were also probably surfing the Internet and doing these other things that can pull you away from your writing and in their own virtual way connect you uh, to the outside world. You know, part of this is also... 
writers are, you know, historically very well known for procrastination. So, you know, how much of this is uh, trying to remedy loneliness and how much of it is just kind of a very sort of dolled up procrastination? I don't know. I think that's a fair question. That's a question. If, if I were interviewing another writer, I would ask them that. <laughs> Isn't this just some high class version of procrastination? <laughs> There is also the isolation of your brain versus your body. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of writers, again, especially when you're deep into something and you kind of neglect any kind of exercise, I think there's a connection that a lot of people do not um, uh, honor or don't realize. I think I became a runner in the last year. And the days when I run, the way that I land at my desk after a run and a stretch and a hot shower and a healthy breakfast, and I mean, my mind is so... It's it's like this perfect blank slate at that point. You know, a lot of writers, you know, like, you know, I, I'm a writer. I sit at a desk and, you know, I don't go to the gym. No, I'm a writer. I'm a mind person, not a body mm-hmm. person. You hear people talk this way. Those things are very connected. I mean, if you're not, uh, my productivity went through the roof when I became started running. I remember very vividly years ago when I was trying to write screenplays, I took a course uh, by Robert McKee, who's a very famous screenwriter, did a very famous uh, uh, course that he would do several times a year in both Los Angeles and New York. Mm -hmm. I think it was simply called Story. Um, And he was at one point, and he could be very dramatic and melodramatic, but at one point he said, um, you know, you you guys, everyone here, sure, they're up for this. Do you want to be sitting at Thanksgiving dinner? Uh, wishing you were back at your desk because you really ought to be working on the thing that you're trying to finish? Is that the life that you want for yourself? And I remember at the time, I thought, gosh, that's really melodramatic, but that's a very true thing. Um, uh, writing is, it in some ways, and it, it sounds very pretentious when people talk like this, but it is true. In some ways, you can't necessarily control when you do your best work. You can't control when you're going to be riding uh, a wave or when you're on a, on a roll or you're having a runner's high, a writer's high. That was a Freudian slip, but okay. a writer's high. Um, and, and when you have that tiger by the tail, you don't want to let go. You absolutely want to get everything out of it you can before you're stuck again or not in such a rhythm. Uh, Does so, that mean like if your kids want to play ball in the backyard and you're on a roll? Right. You when you're on a roll, like, you don't want to let it go. Yeah. You know, you don't. So that can affect your relationships. I think it can affect friendships. I've for sure canceled plans with friends who are good enough friends to understand because I'm on a roll and I don't want to stop working, you know, and I feel like I don't want to. It, it's kind of the flip side of the morning thing and opening the blinds and all that. Yeah. There are times when. You know what? I gotta, I gotta be alone with my work. Um, um, but I think what I would say is, when your work is going well, it doesn't feel like you're alone. I think what feels like you're alone is when your work isn't going well. When you're actually producing and you're in a great place and it's just coming to you, that's not lonely. That's, ha- I mean, that's why, that's why you want to write. You know, right, right, right. But when it's not coming. And you don't know when it, the the tap's going to open up, and you're just waiting for that moment. Um, for someone to pick you to dance, huh? It's <laughs> yeah, or getting picked. Well, yeah. that's your right. This is funny because I would say getting picked for you know the kickball team or whatever. <laughs> but um, but when that uh, when you're in that place and you don't know when it's going to end, that's I think what's lonely, and that's what's hard to get through. Andrew is a big collaborator. All of the cookbooks he's written have been done with chefs such as Alfred Portale, Laurent Turandel, and Michelle Bernstein, to name a few. And, of course, there was the memoir with Blake. Here he talks about that process. If you do it well, and you're working with someone who is not capable of writing their own book, because that's not what they do, but they have a point of view, they have ideas, they have things they want to share or they have a life story they want to tell and you're able to conjure them up on the page and you're able to give a structure to their story um i think of that as a kind of a a gift and i don't mean a gift that i have or that people who collaborate have although maybe it is but i think it's like a gift to the person you're collaborating with i think it's a really um great thing to be able to help somebody do that. I know it's not thought of that way, and I under, I don't think it should be necessarily 
considered on the same level as you know writing your own things. I do both. I write my own things and I uh, and I collaborate. Uh, but I I do I have formed lifelong friendships out of collaborating, even mm-hmm. with people I'd never met before. Almost in every case that I've every project I've worked in has led to a friendship. And I think it's because you kind of go into this mind meld almost, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, and that's a very special thing. Andrew is currently hard at work on a second nonfiction book, an oral history of the American chefs of the 1970s and 80s to be published in 2016. As we sit here on, in February 2016, I'm in the alone phase of the book. Okay. <laughs> uh, the first phase of the book was deeply social. It was a lot of travel. Uh, I, I really believe in whenever possible doing face-to-face interviews. So yeah. I was paying for airfare and hotels and all that to get in a room with people and met a lot of people I'd never met before. A lot of them are legends in the film, in the food business. And that was an amazing period of time. And now I'm in the making sense in order of it all. It's a good example, you know, finding, making sense of literally tens of thousands of pages of transcripts, literally, um, was very lonely work um, and very time consuming. And uh, uh, the, the ultimate structure wasn't clear when I started. It sort of is now. Um, but that, that was a long process. That was a very long process and a completely uh, individual one. Frank O'Hara, the poet, uh, wrote a thing called uh, Personism, a Manifesto. It was this thing that I loved that I read in college. And really, really, really super oversimplifying uh, he talked about writing poems as as if they were directed to one person. And he talks about having had this uh, epiphany one day where he realized instead of writing the poem he was writing, he could have just picked up the phone and <laughs> said what he was saying to the person. And to me, this is kind of... I mean, to me, this is sort of around this subject we're talking about. Uh, that's sort of the real irony about writing is, you know, I think most people write, whether they'll admit it or not. Ultimately, you write to be read. You know, you write to have this connection to the reader. But the price of doing that is being alone with your work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this real irony. You know, you do want to have people get you or understand what you're trying to say. Um, I think most people at heart, one of most people want to be, you know, in their dream, a best-selling author and make a tremendous living off their writing. Well, what would happen if they did that? That would mean they were connecting with an awful lot of people, you know? And, but again, from, you know, from uh, John Grisham on down, everybody needs to be alone in a room with their thoughts and a and a keyboard to produce that. It's it's a really, to me, double edged sword of the profession. Carolyn Mernick is a senior editor at New York Magazine by day, but she's also working on a memoir for Simon and Schuster. My book is a memoir about my relationship with my childhood best friend who was murdered when she was 22. And that was 15 years ago, and I'm writing a book that explores her life and death and the court case surrounding her murder, which is an alleged serial killer who, and that's taking place in Los Angeles in the next couple of years. So uh, the book explores themes of female friendship and how uh, you can sort of start out in the same place as someone and through subtle life decisions end up taking different paths. How does this book's work differ from the work you do during the day? It's something I realized maybe strangely late over the past few years that, wow, I, you know, I have been working in media for many years, but I feel like I have no training at all for the kind of reporting that I'm trying to do in terms of, you know, attending court hearings and getting court documents and talking to detectives and trying to find out things that haven't been looked into before, you know, and and that's not, that's not what food writing and travel writing is at all, right. you know. Did that ever throw you off course? I mean, 
was trying to hack at that research ever so intimidating that you thought I can't do this or were you committed oh to yeah it? all the time I mean yeah. I, I felt like I couldn't do it and you know all every day really that's but that's a hopefully that's something that comes across in the text in a way that makes the narrative relatable because while not everyone has a friend that has been murdered and maybe not everyone would even respond the way I have in terms of wanting to know more that's perhaps part of maybe a writer slash reporter attitude when Mm -hmm. when something confusing happens that you want to dive into it and other people might distance themselves maybe they can't relate to exactly my behavior but I think they can relate to how I describe how weird and overwhelming and confusing doing all these things is that uh, when I'm showing up in court, not not really at, on, a, on a small level, am I press or am I a friend of the victim? I'm sort of both. The press the press treats me one way, but then they actually some of them want information from me. But then, you hmm. know, the friends, the 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 detectives see me as a friend of the victim because I'm not. So I'm not treated the same as the person from People Magazine or Dateline because there has been other media attention on this case for um, lots of different reasons and that it's L.A. and a serial killer and there's celebrity aspects to it. But So there's that basic thing is continually confusing. How do I define myself when I show up there and how weird it is that you know, she died 15 years ago and I'm still, this is still this... Uh, major part of my life and it feels you know I've through the through the writing and research process I've connected with other childhood friends of of ours that remembered her and you know I've made connections that way and I've made connections with her friends in LA in the last year of her life that I didn't know and so you know I've had a lot of moments of connection through this research but ultimately it's I'm the only one that can tell the story that I'm telling just sort of by definition. And so I, I'm alone in that story. And, um, I think that definitely informs my, my point of view when I'm writing and and it makes, and the process has been painful for sure. I know from personal experience, like I have, uh, been toying around with writing some personal essays recently Mm -hmm. and some of the things that I chose to include, um, pissed off some members of my family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I realized that was the first time I realized like, wow, this, um, yes, it's my story, you know, yeah. so I'm entitled to share it, but it also affects other people. And, um, that I felt really alienated from oh, them yeah. and like that they also didn't understand that, um, some things are necessary to include. I wonder if you, uh, how you negotiate what to include and what not to include based on, um, how you feel absolutely it, how important it is to the project but also how you feel right. it might affect other people mm-hmm. um, who are in her world yeah that's a that's a great and you know real consideration mm-hmm. that I think um that I'm just sort of starting the process of of figuring out I, I'm doing final edits on my manuscript now with my with my publisher and I sort of have always felt that okay it's still ahead of me the 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 point the moment where I'm really gonna have to make peace with the fact that this is gonna be out in the world and this person that I wrote about and this person that I wrote about how are they feeling on it and so I think I will at a certain point um give pages to some of the characters some of the people I interviewed that were in it not as a I think that that's usually protocol from other memoir writers that I've written and someone that you were close with that you, you just want to make sure they're comfortable with it. You kind of imply that I can't really change anything at this point, but it's important for me that you know what is coming, you know? So certainly names and details are changed. And I, and I think about trying to be true to the experience of, of the time I spent with this person that I was talking with but also this is a very sensitive topic and we're all and that was another difficult thing a lot of the people that I spoke to in sort of interviews for this you're kind of 
bringing up this trauma again with them. And so yeah. we would have emotional experiences all over again, just in, in this interview process. Mm-hmm. So I have to be sensitive with that as well. I, I certainly do not want, um, I do not want the book to be published and have all these people feel offended and regretful, you know, yeah. but I, but also I think as, as a writer and as a journalist that you can't, you can't really think about that. I definitely think I could not, you know, I could not have done it if I was page by page thinking about, oh my God, how's this person going to take this or my parents or all of these things. At least for the first draft, I have to put all of that out of my head that it will be out in the world. It's still the story that I have to tell. I have tried over the years. I have written at cafes sometimes. I have written at my office after hours that's actually something that um maybe one of the most one of the more successful things I've tried being in my office but everyone's gone for the day and I'm still at my desk and one other tip that I developed was that it it, it takes me a long time to kind of get psyched up to have to get back into the story, you know, every Mm -hmm. day, even, even if, especially if I've missed a day or so and everyone's saying you have to do it every day. And I think you really do because we have so many, at least I have so many like psychological resistances toward getting back into the story and putting yourself in the space. You have to really push yourself to do it. So doing it every day helps. I think I have always been pretty conscious and actually worried about getting too far into this loner writer headspace in a way. And I live alone as well. Mm -hmm. So I have always prioritized trying to have social time and like physical activity throughout all these things. Not that I'm this model of balance, but I probably wouldn't, I don't think I ever canceled plans because I I would be the opposite of that in a way. I would mm-hmm. be like, mm-hmm. I, I need to push myself to see people because I just spent all day inside and this is not doesn't feel emotionally healthy and considering that I've lived alone for a long time I recognize that time on your own loneliness you know spending time on your own and loneliness are not the same thing right uh but it's there's this soup of uh that we need a balance between uh connections with people and solo time and uh, it is in the same way that you probably don't want to, it doesn't feel great to kind of, you know, binge watch Netflix and eat takeout food for three nights in a row. I, I guess I've always had a sense of that. It's not the healthiest to, you know, stay inside for three days writing and reading either, because then when you go out into the world, you feel a little out of sorts. Mm -hmm. It takes you, longer to actually in the same way it takes takes some time to get back and in, to get into the writing headspace then the flip side is then it'll take you a while to get back into the space of being with people I mean sometimes I'll just be like I am sick of myself this is just me 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 and emotions and and deep thoughts and you know I'm writing about loss and and a girl's identity and sexuality and just deep stuff that I would just be like, Oh, I wish I, you know, I need to, I need to go watch the real housewives now to just yeah. fr- balance this more frivolously. So for this project, the writer headspace to me felt heavy, deep, like profound issues. I'm, I'm t- I have to get into taking myself very seriously and, uh, and, um, parse over words and word repetition and how many sentences are are here and you know let yourself go off on a different tangents where I'd be like I'm I'm writing something you know about this cop and what kind of what kind of beer would a cop drink at his backyard barbecue and let's google that and it it feels the writer headspace is just sort of uh this I think 
erratic inner monologue of self-involvement. I've started writing groups. I've had three different writing groups over the past five years through working on this project. Mm. And that writing groups can be difficult to kind of balance all the personalities and different people's uh, work um, styles. But yeah, my groups have lasted anywhere from six months to a year or so and they've been they've actually they've turned out to be all female the first one was people mostly working in media and then another one was more fiction writers and we would meet every two to three weeks and and read each other's pages and for me every so often yeah people would say something that I would end up using in for my that would end up informing my writing but more often it just felt like it's nice to have a little bit of a feeling of community with people that are trying to support each other here and to me someone reading my pages felt like a real gift and a real gift of support that someone is uh wants to get it wants to invest in this with me and then there then that's much easier for me to be able to be talk about my characters and what's happening and what did you think of that and have someone that's invested to be able to have the other side of that conversation with me yeah so yeah I'm definitely I've always been a writer where I'll let anyone read what I'm working on in progress if they show an interest you know because it's it's very flattering and I also know that you know when this gets published I'll I'll have to deal with all sorts of all sorts of readers and it's practice in in letting go of your work and the the reality that our end result if things go well is that this is out in the world and most of your readers are going to be people you don't know and so I I'm glad to share what I have right now with anyone. In my first draft of the book, most of it is written in the first person, but I have a section that's third person. And one of my readers that I was going over this with was remarking on how defensive I am with about most of the book. But then when we got to the third person part of things, I was much more mellow about accepting feedback and changes. And then I was like, that's interesting. Maybe, you know, this is, that's, maybe that's because Critic, you know, criticism of the rest of this is you're criticizing my soul, you know, pretty right. much. You're criticizing like my actual life and thoughts, and you know how I'm expressing what was my own experience. But this third person part is is closer to you know some is just a regular artistic work that I've reported on and written. Right. And so yeah, there's there's something to that with criticism to a personal narrative feeling, at least to me, very penetrating. I guess I've I've always understood that when you're when you're a writer this is and and you're publishing with a publisher this is you become a brand and you're a commercial product for them and so a lot is out of your control about how decisions they make about what kind of brand you are or your book is, you know, and that's that's scary for sure. I just but you know, I have to have faith in the process that it will be okay, and it's happened. It's happened to everybody. I think that this particular book and this process feels to me, at least at this point, the most exposure I could imagine mm-hmm. in a way that of writing. Both, you know, I'm using the narrative is this is in the first person. I say I, 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 like over and over again, and it's about my whole life, starting from you know age nine up into my thirties, and you know, my picture is going to be out there and I feel, and I, and I'm writing about very sensitive stuff and, and we live in this climate of, of, you know, pretty harsh internet criticism. And I understand that what I, what I have in store and, and that, um, I'm realistic about what, about the level of kind of strength that I have to shore myself up for to um, what this could actually be like. I, I I imagine that we as writers perhaps feel loneliness in in a more acute way where when 
at the same time, paradoxically, we have to be alone to write. We're perpetuating the loneliness. It's that's it's just who we are, I think. Mm-hmm. What is the writer's temperament that you're referring to? Um, sensitivity and going towards discomfort often and asking difficult questions of others and yourselves, wanting to shed light on what's going on, even if that might upset people or things. And if you can tell a story well, and often it can be what you think might be the most sort of extreme and individualized story, that is what can really touch people that perhaps have nothing in common with you, but sort of the, the weirdest parts of you, if you tell them, uh, if you tell them plainly and empathetically that people connect with that. And that's, and that's the, the most powerful thing that, that writing can do. And so I know that this story uh, of Ashley's life and death and me as the friend that is going on in life and making finding meaning about uh remembering her in this way i know that that is something that connects with people and i know that everyone has has complicated feelings about about their friends or friends from the past or loss to listen to past episodes of The Lonely Hour or to see what's coming up next, head to thelonelyhour.com.